You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us Ashok Sutta who's written Busted Debunking Management Myths with Logic, Experience and Curiosity. And he's written this book along with Peter De Jaeger and Sandhya Mendonca. Hello. Hi, hi, hi Manjula, how are you? I'm fine. And you know, uh, like I was saying, you know, when I was reading this book, I thought that you know, it's not just though it's like, you know, Harper has brought it out under a business imprint. It actually is the reason I picked it up when I was flipping through it and I found it really interesting was because many of the things that are dealt with in the book have applications in your life in general also I felt you know so absolutely so do you want to talk about you know about that well uh, you know firstly your observation is right it's not a book for just CEOs it's not a book for people only in business per se but anybody who wants to challenge conventional wisdom and see if you want to move beyond status quo so that's really the principal thing for example if you take the uh, essay on it's lonely at the top although it's geared towards a specific role of a ceo but people can feel lonely in any role to me therefore loneliness like happiness two ends of an extreme are, are a choice they're a personal choice and uh, that's what we're trying to get across to people hey don't just go and follow some uh, dictum or some other paths and then see how you can apply it in your own lives in business decisions and uh, really virtually as you go about uh, your activities develop an attitude therefore questioning conventional wisdom hmm. Hmm. so you have you've picked up stuff that you know i mean one just assumes is uh, is the truth i mean there are many many of these uh, things which you know people don't really question um huh. stuff like you know we can train people to become uh, leaders the essence of strategies choosing what not to do and each of these is a, is a chapter but like you said is lonely at the top and and this other one uh, powerpoint pre- type presentations are boring you know and multitasking is always to be avoided you know, these sort of things i mean you can a lot of us just accept them you know they're just part of the background noise and you think that that's the truth and you go along like that so you get the reader to question these so called truths so do you want to yeah yeah well you know when you as you were just narrating uh, i was asking myself uh, on multitasking it's one more, more everybody will tell you no no it's terrible <laughs> you should not doing it but if you look at the virtual world and i have told you the example of our happiest minds uh, uh, ipo we uh, what a wonderful thing that we moved away in the monetary days i would have visited 55 financial uh, institutions brokers etc to market the issue when we came to happiest minds it was a virtual world so we were doing it while we had the pandemic now it didn't take even two uh, such sessions to realize hey i can do a lot more useful work even while it's going on after all a typical structure of a session would be i'll kick it maybe with a 6 7 minutes opening remarks based on two slides then my colleagues would take over their presentations we would encourage people if you want you can come in and ask a question at any time they would typically do it at a halfway point then i realized i'm not needed so we'd put it on mute 
and there was so much you could do. I must confess, I did my because the spirit was so busy. I had uh, we did sixty-two sessions, which means we probably spent about seventy-five hours. The saving that I got in my time was therefore enormous, and that applies to all my colleagues. I'm sure it applies to all the brokers who were there at the other end, or the financial institutions at the other end. But they were only going to do it once. We were doing it uh, for 70 different people. And yes. uh, I must confess, I did my morning yoga. I had no time uh, <laughs> day because this was happening to my day. And while I had it on mute, I was doing my yoga. And then I saw a question coming up where I was likely to need to respond. It was very easy to get back, particularly yes. since... Our methodology clearly was that I will only uh, speak uh, or respond to a question after my colleagues, which means I'll come in and add. The primary person would respond, and I would come in and add value if I wanted to. Hmm. So you know, and, and you've also spoken about how uh, the pandemic itself, you know, changed so many things, like about the way we work, and this. Wouldn't have been. I mean, I remember, you know, uh, even ten years ago, if you said. You know, let me work from home on this day of the week. It would be it would be scandalous. <laughs> you know, everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'll give you the reverse side where it was scandalous, though, and that was in the real world, pre-pandemic or post-pandemic. You're sitting in a very large meeting with national leaders, yes. and uh, somebody sitting on the dais and watching, and a guy has decided that he's clearing all his email on his phone, <laughs> and you could see it being tapped away. Now that's rude. Yes. Uh, all, all of us in varying degrees, I didn't have it myself, but people had uh, sitting in a, uh, you know, a national council meeting of a leading industry association and Tendulkar on his last match and everybody's <laughs> eyes were there. So much so that when he got out, the president had to announce, okay, now let's all get back to the meeting. <laughs> As you all know, he's got yeah, these the, these changes, you know. But you also mentioned how I, I was quite surprised when uh, with this quote from Nandan Nilekarni saying that he is not on WhatsApp at all. I mean, uh, I found so, that. <laughs> if you try to check me out on WhatsApp, you'll find I'm not there either. So time saving is a different thing altogether. Yes, and I'm not there whatsoever, even for my family. But I have a system whereby I get this then delivered to me. Uh, in a bulk when I want to see them. But they're the only ones where I do that. Otherwise, I'm really not on WhatsApp and on any other social media other than LinkedIn. But I want to keep building my connections. As we become more and more enmeshed in the social media environment, and it's throwing up new opportunities as well as distractions. So, uh, I mean, isn't that part of uh, you know, a sort of... Uh, you know, you maybe, know uh, I'm... Sure. I'm not sure what opportunities I could get out of social media. We have to leverage it, no question. Take a company like Happiest Health, which is the first B2C venture I'm doing. And uh, obviously, in today's world, when we want to increase circulation of our newsletter, we want to increase circulation of our magazine. One thing we've learned, that organic doesn't fly anymore. It's yes. all inorganic by social media. Yes. And so... I don't need to know or be an expert. Obviously, we have youngsters, really, who are so adept at it, they just do it like second nature. Yes. But when they're doing it like second nature, I also wonder about going back to this uh, thing about, you know, uh, uh, multitasking and not being able to concentrate. You know, going forward, you, I don't know, in a, how is it going to play out, you think? You know, this constant uh, fracturing of attention. 
Uh, so again, I would say there are two different things here, and I think we touch on this also. Yes. We say there's a lot of difference between multitasking and ADHD. Yes. You could be meeting. Let me tell you this: you're sitting in a physical meeting, yeah. and every few minutes your mind is wandering away. You could even get caught out sometimes, and somebody throws a question to you and say, "Hey, do you mind repeating the question?" That yeah. is a person whose mind is wandering. But on the other hand, if you're very focused and you're also saying, "I'm using my time in the best way possible," you can really multitask. I'll give you another uh, another angle to it uh, completely. And here, this is. This is one of one of the skills I remember being on in another type of a dialogue uh, where they say, "What is one of the biggest skills of a CEO?" And I say, "He's got to be able to juggle. He or she has got to be able to juggle multiple balls at the same time." Now, symbolically, this is what uh, uh, you know multitasking is. You're really focusing on each one of the balls. There's no loss of attention, but you're multitasking and getting your productivity. Okay. You know, so I was thinking, how did you come up with each of these? I mean, you know, just take me to the process. Of, you know, each of like, you, how did you zero in on these sort of you know myths that we've kind Perfect. of like a number of myths which, as you come across, might have bugged me from time to time, <laughs> and then I decided more or less that I would write a book on this. However, uh, and then we went through a little bit of a second stage. My story of how I met my co-author Peter Yeager. Who's a Canadian living in Canada? He and I were both speaking at uh, uh, an event where I was the keynote speaker from the Quality Association of India in Bangalore, and he was going to be the second speaker. But when I and I had just recently published Entrepreneurship Simplified, so when I uh, finished my talk, I immediately left and I went to a booth which had been I could sign books and people who were interested could come and pick them up. Now, of course, a number of people followed me, which wasn't very polite because there was a next speaker. But I was signing away, signing away, and lo and behold, Peter Jagger landed up in the next stall, and he obviously had a following also because a lot of people followed him to pick up his books, which he was signing away merrily. And so we both exchanged of each other. I liked his writing. In fact, his whole writing focused on the other points of view. So he'd make a statement, but also give the other point of view. And here also, I said, although. I may feel that these are myths, but somebody else may not necessarily think so. We must have a bilateral point of view. So when I I then met him a couple of years later in Toronto, and uh, I said, "Hey, look, how would you like to write this book together?" And he said, oh, "I'd be delighted to do so." And I told him, uh, "Then I sent him the essays I already had in mind because I'd been thinking about it obviously for some time." And then I said, "Why don't you, Peter, come up with your list of essays?" And we both came up with about an approximately equal number. As a result, we were to socialize his list uh, a little bit. Uh, some of them were unusual, like you talked about the one on PPTs, yes. and uh, so. But but that was also uh, you know it fitted in because there are a lot of people now. Peter gives talks for a living, so when all of us are trained, like I've been trained, I never enter into a customer meeting or. A, Uh, even an address where you're going to use a PPT because you'll just get the person's attention focused on the PPT. But he does it for a living and does it exceedingly well. So he really wanted to get this point of view across. So we got the list of articles. Now what happened was came the pandemic, and then everybody told me this is not the right time to publish a book on management. Nobody's traveling, nobody's seeing things. So we put it aside by mutual agreement. Hmm. By the time the pandemic was over, I was in the midst of or in the Uh, engaged with uh, my IPO, 
I started SCAN, my medical research trust. I started Happiest Health, all in rapid succession. And now I had no time. And then at that time, and I've dealt with Sandhya for a while. She's a very, uh, I'd say, you know, she was the right person to complete it. So each one of us had our roles where we said, okay, now we've captured my views and uh, Peter's commented on my essays. I've commented on his essays. Now we need to get third party comments. And that is where she came in. And she then went across, as you know, to people like Nandan and many other people and uh, got some, I'd say, very pertinent comments. And that then helped to complete the book in a multi-faceted. So we are not saying, hey, we disagree with him is completely wrong. That's not it. We're saying you do need to see the dimensions of any statement and then see what sense it makes to you. Okay. And I see she's the only one on, on social media. <laughs> <laughs> she would be. Is, is Peter not on social media? And I'd be surprised if he's not. I couldn't find him. I couldn't find him. Maybe oh. I didn't look properly. Maybe yeah. the I didn't get the correct uh, handle. But I found um, I found her very easily. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, you would have found her. She. That's her life, also. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, of all these, which ones did you find? Do you find most? I don't know that you had to think through the most. You know. I'll tell you that two. Uh, one, I think, because it's the most thought-provoking, mm. and that is the uh, and where the world has changed mm. uh, on uh, strategy. You know, mm. it seems almost sacrilegious that you could question either a Michael Porter or even a Peter Drucker more so. Mm. But uh, the reason why, you know, Michael Porter was perhaps born in a world where you had to focus a lot more than you do today. I think today the internet makes it possible for you to get into multiple businesses, same platform. That's mm -hmm. one. You got a digital platform and you can address a lot more, so why shouldn't you? Two, there's a convergence of technologies which opens up new opportunities. Mm -hmm. And therefore to say, hey, I just focus on this and I've got a limitation in my resource. There must be a trade-off when you make those decisions. I'm saying there's no need for trade-offs. You've got a good idea. Then that idea must be uh, adequately vested in. That's one part of it. Second part of it is that, look, uh, you've, uh, you have you know, you can't uh, visualize a day and age today where if you sat down and say, I'll focus on my core competence and not do the other, that other guy is going to come and sweep the uh, uh, carpet from under your feet. And you'll see what happened. Yes. Google came in and took Android. Yes. Logically, who should have done Android? It should have been uh, Bill Gates. Yes. Then... After many years of being second player and a small string second player to Google on search, suddenly a new technology change, which is generative AI, yes. has made it possible for, uh, you know, uh, th this wonderful uh, th uh, thing for Bill Gates, for uh, Satya Nadella to say, okay, chums, now I've got you. <laughs> and he's completely revolutionizing search. Yes. So you can see you've got to be able to play your hands in multiple areas to be able to see how things are going. No, so I can come to fail fast, fall cheap. You know, fail cheap. It's I've been after dealing with Silicon Valley, and this is where this whole notion has been uh, developed. And to me, it's actually ridiculous. You never enter into a venture by saying that you're going to fail and then cut your losses down. And that's a great consolation because I didn't spend too much money. That's ridiculous. In everything, you want to have a possibility that your original proposition may not work. But then is there a scope to pivot? Is there a scope to zoom in or zoom out? 
And then you have to explore those opportunities. And I think the key thing that you've got to be clear is how much money will you need in order to break even? Now, once you know that and you have a path towards raising that money, there's no need to fail for uh, at all. And then you enter a venture with the intention that, you know, you're not foolhardy, but you're also very clear that you're going to make a success of it. I think this thought of saying, okay, I'll get out of it to my mind doesn't make sense. So there are people who tried on the same problem, uh, thing where, uh, multiple times. They certainly not fail fast, fall cheap because first one didn't work and then they went and tried maybe the 10th or 12th effort and succeeded. But you keep plugging away because you look for what can make it a success. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where you brought in the example of Dyson and and the, the bagless uh, vacuum cleaner, right? Where I think you mentioned he, uh, he went through he 1, went 000, times. Yeah, 1,500 yeah, yeah, yeah. iterations. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. That <laughs> sounds unbelievable. And yet that is how life is actually. Yeah. So the, you're saying that this is, this is one of the things that you thought uh, thought through and was more one of the subjects that was more complicated. Right. But uh, what about what about the others? Which were the ones that, uh, you know, that you really had to think about a lot before you put it down? Sure. Well, I'll tell you, obviously, the really important one must be Peter Drucker and uh, Culture Eats Strategy for Breakfast. Mm. Uh, And two or three angles we are going on to say that he's only reputed to have made that statement. He maybe he didn't ever make it, but it's now gone into folklore and attributed to him anyway. Now, you know, I'm a person who believes very, very much in culture. I have created companies which are known continuously for year after year for being seen as great places to work. And that being seen that way internally is only due to the culture you've created. People have to sense that culture. So I think it's critical. There's no question about it. But at the same time, uh, you could also have a flawed strategy and you could fail, even if you have the most wonderful culture. So therefore, it's this, uh, what I dislike about that statement, where irrespective of who'd made it, is saying that one thing is more important than the other. I believe in order to succeed, you really need to be good at multiple things. That's one. Mm-hmm. And you have to do them in a, in a way where you're cost correcting. There are two differences again. See, in strategy, uh, every differentiator has to be revisited. It'll never last forever. And mm-hmm. in today's day and age, that period is becoming shorter and shorter because many more people are coming in. Newer technologies are helping somebody to get a better differentiator. You may have been the first or second entrant and the fifth entrant is sweet. So your differentiators have to be re-examined, but in a finite period. In culture, I would say it's a continuous cost correction. That's the important difference though. Mm-hmm. Simply because once you get into a toxic culture, then you'll have a big problem. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, then you really don't know how to be able to uh, rectify it, take so much effort to do it. But it's not only from that angle. I think at all times, you're building, evolving, developing the culture that you want in your organization. So both aspects of it need attention. Now, so also does marketing and so also does culture. I'm only objecting to saying that one thing beats the other. Okay, you know, talking about toxicity, you know, you've you've handled. There's this chapter on how you know people leave uh, people leave people, not organizations. You know, and everybody sure. says this. You know, it's a bad sure. boss that makes people sure. leave, and 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 this chapter kind of brings brings out the 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 fact that it's not just the bad boss. Though bad bosses can give you ulcers, but you know, maybe not sure. always make you leave. So let's sure. talk about sure. that. You know? So I'll tell you one thing, a toxic manager 
will make a person leave. I don't think there's a doubt on that. But mm-hmm. then organizations are not going to allow toxic managers to keep existing. You yes. know, if there is a toxic, that person will get found out and will be shown the door. Yes. Therefore, you're assuming that you're tracking that. The organization is tracking it. And I would say they just take a look at the, I'll give you an example here of the IT industry, for example. For whatever reasons, over a period of maybe a decade, Infosys was the flagship of the industry, not TCS, though it was the biggest mm. uh, by far. Mm. Uh, wonderful culture, wonderful uh, leaders, uh, pretty attractive stock options for a very large variety, but not as wide as we did it later on in Happiest Minds, where we covered everybody. But still, they were a leader in many respects. Uh, so often, TCS was seen as the plugging old. They have acquired a different reputation already, but the plugging away, they've got size and scale and they can do that in a better way than anybody else. But look at the attrition rates. Uh, Infosys at a period of time, like many other companies, was running at about say, 17, 18%. PCS, on the other hand, was 9, 10, 11%. Now, you can't say that the culture at uh, Infosys was inferior. It wasn't. Uh, and it wasn't that it was full of any toxic managers uh, creating the problem either. But there were different reasons which have led to that. One reason could just be that the people themselves were seen as very entrepreneurial, innovative, and so on. And therefore, um, value add outside. So you're looking for yes. people with that sort of an image. And therefore, the best of companies will lose people. You obviously want to retain your best. But I would say as long as you have a mix, like we track when we have a loss, was that a very valuable person? Was it a person who we could have done a hell of a lot to try and hold back? Then the next level and so on, where there's literally no regret. Because a certain amount of the bottom layer, if they go away and they're not all that hot, then it's fine. It keeps the system bringing in new talent also as you seek to replace them or grow other people below who could take their positions. So I don't think that that statement in itself, in a narrow sense, it is true. Yes, a toxic manager will lead to anything, but then you should tackle the toxic manager and not allow him to keep on driving your own people out of the company. And I think all good companies do that. Mm-hmm. Though in some companies, it, I mean, one hears of, uh, you know, maybe the toxic manager hanging around too long, you know, that also happens yeah, before he's ousted. I would say there the company has failed in taking appropriate feedback. Because let's put it like this. You know, I would imagine today in most modern companies, you have a 360-degree feedback system. So that toxic manager may make the life of a person miserable, but that person and his or her colleagues has got the opportunity to let uh, that person and their bosses know that, look, this is a toxic guy. He's making our life miserable. And uh, that should come up. And the moment it comes up, they should not be allowed. Then if a company ceases to act on it, oh, this person's too valuable for us for X, Y, or Z reason, and you ignore that, mm-hmm. then is when the danger happens and when they've been allowed to stay on too long. There can be people like that in a company. And there can be at times reasons why people hesitate to get uh, people off. Mm-hmm. So, and here in the key takeaways, you say you can't stop attrition, but you must focus on who's leaving do your best to retain your future leaders. So, yeah. Well, this is another important point. Uh, maybe there are two different aspects in this point, where one is, of course, tracking your uh, best people and seeing what you need to do, anticipating what could be, giving them a career path. And I think that is what I mean by saying, uh, 
See, give people a career path where we say, look, you may be going through a phase in your where you're either not challenged or you feel you want something else to be done. But we've also got a path for you. Mm-hmm. And that path could lead you into these areas. Or we're exploring those paths with you. The moment you're in that sort of a dialogue or engaged with people, then I think they'd, uh, you know, uh, that is what matters to them. They would really want to see where am I heading? Where is this role taking me into? And that sort of a conversation is what really makes the difference. Mm. You know, in the same chapter, this really interesting bit, uh, I mean, everybody is talking about it, and this, the, the, the great resignation um, of 2022, you know, and its implications because people want, you know, work-life balance and suddenly post-COVID, everybody's thinking about all these things, you know. So let's talk okay. about that. And is that, a thing? Is it? it's happening, of course, in the States, but I'm wondering how much it's happening here. So obviously all of us, and I think probably the IT industry went through it more sharply than many of the others. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people had got used to working from away from home, the first reaction was, why do you necessarily need us to come back? You, you're distributed in 5,000 locations and you're saying you deliver wonderful quality. So now why are you demanding that we must come back? That's a very simplistic way of looking at things. Uh, I must tell you, as a company, it was almost unbelievable. But the day we started Happiest Minds, we told our teams that you have the freedom to work from home once a week. So we had already brought in a system where we said technology is enabling us to get to work with you. Yes, if you want for sure productivity, not having to battle the traffic every day, you can work from home once a day a week. So we did that. The day the pandemic came and the lockdowns came, we could implement this broader, frankly, within two days. So we had no loss of And we said, okay, now come back. And mind you, during this period of the pandemic, growth rate was actually at a high because technology was driving a lot of new applications. Yes. And we hired probably, I would imagine, at least 60% of our workforce we added during that period. Now, those are the ones who were the most reluctant to come back. They say, well, we came in on this thing that we were working from home. And frankly, there's one other negative aspect which one must be cautious of. You don't know how many of them were moonlighting. You know, it doesn't take too much for a very bright young technology person uh, to be working from home and uh, uh, ostensibly working full-time for you and working almost full-time for another party. They're hardworking kids. They put in 16 hours of work, double then, but you don't want that. It's not a good culture. Yes. Uh, And uh, also there's a third aspect, and that is you might be able to say, I can do this for a day or two a week. But I do want people to be able to come uh, and be a part of a team because this is not just remotely executing software. It's a question of dialogue with each other, the teamwork that goes into it, and so on. Uh, Water cooler conversations. And that is imperative. Now, it's taken all of us time to be able to get down to that. Today, I would say we had about 75% people saying uh, they come in on a three days a week. Senior people may come in. Uh, much more. And uh, we've also said at a certain stage, we will lay down the ultimatum. Of course, we have done one other change. If we began the company with one day a week at Happiest Minds, we have said here you can stay two days a week from and work from. So that's fine. And that mm-hmm. still gives you ample time to get together with your teams, etc., etc. It reduces your requirement for space and you can keep expanding within the same facility that much more because twice a week, uh, People are not always in, and that's all by rotation. Mm. So it can work out. I'll give you another example here at Happiest Health. Now, we are, after all, we are producing content every day. 
So we began the company. And because we began at a time when we were hiring and it was already post-pandemic, we said, you have to be here every day of the week. But after we've got going for about a year and all, we're asking ourselves, does everybody have to come in every day? So we've now introduced the reverse. We said, you can go and stay for one day a week at home. So based on the nature of the business we uh, and work from home there, uh, at Happiest Minds, we're saying two days a week, you can work from home. Here at Happiest Health, we're saying one day a week, adjusting it based on the nature of the industry and the way people work with each other. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, when I was reading this chapter also, you know, this particular uh, thing made me think of other things like stores don't have uh, some of the same reasons hold good in India. It's under this postscript, how COVID-19 changed things. Some of the same reasons hold good in India. Stores don't have staff. Delivery companies are running short of agents and factories don't have enough workers. Much of this is because the workforce to a large extent comprises domestic migrants who've gone back to their villages or towns and don't have uh, the in- incentive to return to the big cities. Now, you know, this made me think of like recently, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it's now a month, you know, the, these upha- upheavals seem to be happening f- quite frequently in urban India, you know, where some sort of, I mean, I don't know, ethnic uh, problems suddenly, you know, spiral into all all, all workers, uh, migrant workers just rushing away. You know, so how, how, how do how does corporate India uh, protect itself against this? You know, it's like, because it happens out of nowhere. So there are two different things here again. I mean, you're talking about all these ethnic uh, problems which have been occurring in varying degrees. And uh, I would say the first part of this is that it has changed a little bit of our approach towards location. I will tell you this. My view always was that we must have, and I've done this through my years at Wipro, then Mindtree, and uh, then Happiest Minds, that you need a finite number of large offshore locations because you don't want to distribute the teams too far apart. Uh, That changed largely, if you ask me, thanks to the pandemic. We realized that people want to be close to home. So now we are saying it doesn't matter. Even a company our size, and we are no like TCS or Infosys, no problem if we end up in eight different locations. And we keep expanding also from that matter. You can make small efficient centers, maybe 1,000 people or 2,000 people, and keep growing till over 10 centers by the time you're 20,000 people. So that's not bad. But that's very distinct from the approach I had. And I think that's a learning from saying, yes, we can still, we don't have to have 5,000 people working in 5,000 locations. They can work in clusters, still get teamwork and still get closer to their homes, makes them feel a little more comfortable. The other thing about some areas where, of course, you have ethnic problems, that's really an opportunity. People want to get out of those places and you get very good talent from there. Right. So, you know, another really interesting chapter, which I thought, you know, I really liked it was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, this is, you know, uh, I don't know. It was a, even uh, as an individual, you know, uh, I thought it's really useful because one tends to think like this, you know, why bother? Uh, but then you've said that there's such a loss by thinking like that. So do you want to talk about that? Sure. Uh, you know, again, it's fairly, in a way, as you said, it's almost self-evident where people say, Firstly, there's a need for change. There's a need for change proactively. You don't wait to say, hey, is thing going to go wrong? You don't even, it's not like a, let me put it like that, even in a, a mechanical part which is being produced in a, a machine, you've got tools which help you to say, it's going out of my deviation limits which I'll allow, and then you will act before it breaks. So the idea is to preempt, to anticipate, to change, 
well before uh, uh, it reaches that stage. And if you don't in today's world, then uh, obviously you're going to hit into a disaster sooner or later. So it's certainly a case against uh, the status quo. Uh, it's always being preemptive, I would imagine. That's really the point. Testing your processes. Processes need changes, not even... You know, things are changing all the time. Therefore, is it good enough today when uh, what we had started with when we began the company? It obviously needs to be expanded. So these are some of the things which I would imagine need to be uh, seen uh, constantly. And I think more so in this world where change and innovation, speed is really going on at a breakneck pace. Do you want to talk about this new technologies offer us the opportunity to reopen old problems? Sometimes doing nothing more than asking, what if X had been available 20 years ago? Prompts us to zero in on those opportunities hidden behind old solutions. I found this like really think quite deeply, you know, about uh, things basically. I think it's a very interesting dimension. I must say there are parts of this, as you know, and this particular essay is written primarily by Peter. I completely... Believe <laughs> in it. And I think he's made a very interesting observation. Uh, when you look at it, uh, if you really put yourself into a different time horizon, yeah, and you said, if I had this technology available at this stage, would I have done something differently? It's a huge thing. You can extend this, if you ask me, to an even more important dimension. That's the forward dimension. Yes. You know, could somebody have said, if I knew generative AI is going to come, how would I have organized my business? You can anticipate the way technologies are moving. So it can work in a, a time frame which takes you to the past, but it can also take you into a time frame which you look at the future. Anticipate the future through that. Though I think the tool given by Peter is a very interesting tool. I would use it more forward-looking than uh, in the way he suggested, but it's a very good dimension. Hmm. But, you know, I'm wondering because, you know, Things, technology and life generally changes. I mean, we think we think we know or we, we know what's going to happen in the future, but invariably, you know, it catches us by surprise. So uh, sure. how do we how do we preempt then? You know, yeah, well, the, you're right about one thing that in spite of all anticipation, people keep getting surprises. There's no issue ah, on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you look at, uh, let's say, and I'll give you a very... Uh, an example from, say, the whole area of risk management. In the end, with all the work that is done and all the lists which are prepared on risk management, in the end, the risk which will go and knock somebody in a bad way is a risk which nobody anticipated. Yeah. And I remember, so it'll happen. I mean, for example, nobody anticipated the pandemic. So how could you have prepared for something like this? Impossible. Could you have built it into your plans? You couldn't have. Uh, but I'll tell you now, when you look back on it, if nothing else, we prepared ourselves for a situation, not uh, consciously, but by saying, okay, let people work from home one day a week. So suddenly we were prepared for it. That, that's the sort of thing that you could anticipate. What happens if the world suddenly changes? Uh, uh, I remember reading somewhere saying that there's a probability of a huge high-risk event occurring out of the many high-risk events that we know and don't know, but we don't know which one is going to occur. And that is the problem. And that is why it really needs somebody to think very dramatically. I think if I were to write a book on risk management, I would apply some of what we are just talking about. I'm not going to do that, by the way. But uh, <laughs> it is, it's a really key thing. That's what we're doing all the time. Uh, we're trying to anticipate, and yet we keep on getting problems and keep getting surprises. Yeah. So we do need another we do need, and increasingly that dimension is 
I think technology and the environment huge. I mean, now look at it. Yes. Uh, you can't anticipate uh, things, and suddenly, uh, you know, even on a simple thing like uh, agriculture, everything is thrown for a six by Bangalore, where the highest rain month was August. It's suddenly been a completely dry month, yes. and it's like summer all over again. So weather patterns are changing. I think it is things like this that we need to factor into our decision making and say what ifs and move away from the traditional risk management. Mm. You mean think of things like climate change also as an intrinsic pa- part of uh, how life is going to play out. So how work sure, sure. is going to happen. And there are other positive aspects. You know, for example, if you ask me. Uh, life spans one way or the other increasing. And the old concepts of this has got to be your retirement age is really ridiculous. Because are people then going to spend 20, 30 years in an idol? It's not everybody who can go and start their own company or do something. I think you need to give people longer productive lives. That will help them to get engaged and keep on adding more value to people as they come through. So I think things like that or train people into moving into entrepreneurial careers. They're not the youngsters who are doing it all the time. Give people an alternate s- source of livelihood. Do realize that there's a need for a much, much longer time span than existed certainly around the time when I was born. And we can see the difference over the next uh, 20, 30 years. There are dramatic differences. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, because... You know, the existence of a pool of people who are, um, you know, post-retirement age, who are very skilled, but I mean, I don't think we're using the, uh, the nation. I think it's a, it's a terrible waste, if you ask me. Yes, yes, it's a big waste. It's a big waste. Yeah. And therefore, how to utilize that could become a huge increase factor for productivity, for the country's GDP and so on. And very consciously plan that. Okay. Uh, okay, and this automate everything is another one that uh, you know. I thought. Uh, yeah, well, you know. Oh, that's uh, also Peter's cool. the one. Peter's, Peter's done it, but I'll tell you, my first yeah. reaction to this was, "Hey, yeah. Peter, I'm in a business where we are trying to automate everything. So please don't <laughs> ask me to subscribe to their theory. But we have all had the freedom to disagree. And basically, I think the essence of what Peter is saying is: one, firstly, we begin to automate. And you're starting with a lousy process and you automate that process, then you'll end up with an even worse result. And so that was one big change. Uh, and secondly, you know, you've got to be clear that there are some things which are better left for uh, real human intervention. It's This is going to be challenged even more and more. They remember this article and essay is written before generative AI. Yes, and today yes. there is almost nothing. I, I look at our job. And one of our challenges is really going to be where people are saying, hey, but we are using generative AI to uh, create our content. We definitely don't want to do it. But it's going to create a productivity factor with respect to people who uh, are doing it. So uh, then how do you use that or leverage it in order to take advantage of this situation? So that's a big uh, issue. And uh, therefore, you do need to automate with a lot of care. And at the same time, realize that you're now hitting into a world which is even more different from the world. And it's dramatic how it's changed. It's different from the world in which Peter wrote this article, because how old is generative AI? 
and i found it interesting that you've mentioned in uh, in the book that this the book itself i mean yeah while you while it was and i thought of it while i was reading uh, and then you mentioned it at some point that um, the uh, it, transcription ai was used for the transcription and for some proofreading and these are whole jobs that vanish with ai right with the uh, with the with the advent of ai so i mean of course jobs keep vanishing and new ones replace them new skills come yeah so that is very true i believe that this is a real cusp though i mean we've never seen i've seen in my 40 years of technology i've never seen a technology which is having such a wide sweeping impact such vast change it will introduce into the way multiple jobs get affected and how organizations are going to respond to that see in the short run it actually creates a huge opportunity for it companies like us because there what you may call is new use cases can i apply generative ai to a b c d e things can i take my old applications and bring in generative ai that's a huge opportunity in the long run it's also a problem for us because mm-hmm. they'll suddenly say hey but you can do your code and we don't need all your great software developers to do a lot of what you're doing it'll take time and then it'll move into a different type of skill that we'll bring in maybe a more a higher focus on say consulting skills as distinct from this so changes do take place in that sense and i believe you can't stop technology you have to keep on moving and evolving with it yes yes but don't you think you know maybe in the 70s people thought exactly the same thing you know when uh, with co- computers coming in in a big way i mean you know, before before uh, i mean i'm sure even at that point everybody had this fear that oh we they did have the fear that we're losing jobs we're going to be in india we had that fear in india we went through a dramatic change i mean where could you yes. ever have a country and i can tell you my early days of wipro we used to sell computers into uh, the banks we couldn't call them computers they were called as advanced ledger posting machines and we were told <laughs> that the <laughs> that the memory capacity cannot agree, uh, ex- exceed more than so much in uh, on the disk and so much in ram because if you made it too powerful then the person who was sitting and working on it would feel insecure but you know the most wonderful thing that happened here was that when the it industry took off everybody who was resisting in the old days in the bank and so on they wanted their sons and daughters in it so they were the <laughs> biggest proponents of it and that's where they're coming from today we get people from villages towns uh, and the same thing is today happening in biotech you'll get a different sort of resistance as biology invades almost everything that we're going to do and then there'll be ethical issues being examined because how much are you going to be able to change things by let us say altering stem cells and programming them to behave in certain ways and so on and so forth the difficulty here is that almost every technology which will have a wonderful impact can also have a negative impact and you don't know how that will get misused and that really is one of the wisdom for policy people that's what they're debating right now in ai and how to control or modify or what sort of policy but that doesn't mean that everybody will follow it the bad guys will do what they want to do that's their whole concern yeah i suppose these are things that one can't predict anyway you know sure. so, yeah can so, i suggest an article there? that we yes, could talk please. about for uh, yes, you want you know one which i particularly want like is that you should hire people smarter than yourself yes yes now, that is a good one <laughs> yeah you know the way i see it whoever defined that uh, really never even had an idea or linking of what smartness means is it just iq in iq then you can't beat anybody for bill gates so i described how he quizzed me for one hour and then i had to keep telling him i don't know this but i'll get back to you if required <laughs> he probably could never get a person with higher iq but that is not what he was necessarily needing 
you have to take into account the concept of multiple intelligences. You've got to think of complementary skills. You should be able to add value to your team. And every member of the team should be smarter at their job than you are. But if you're looking to say, am I getting somebody who's smarter to be a CEO? You're going to have contention very soon because you're, you you know, you're, you should have succession plans. But that doesn't mean that you're starting off with the basis that this person is going to be a better CEO than me. So I think that's the important thing to be seen. And the last time, really speaking, if you ask me a person in real life ever went out <laughs> to hire a person smarter than himself was Steve Jobs, who went and sought out uh, Scully, and Scully then scuttled him by letting the <laughs> bot take away his powers. Luckily, he was a flop. And yeah. that led to Steve Jobs' coming. And there can't be a more dramatic example of that in the world. Yes. But that Scully's reign lasted quite a bit, quite a few years, didn't it, before uh, Jobs managed to come back? But you know, the resentment that every one of Scully's successors faced, because the team there, they only believed in, uh, 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 you know, in Steve Jobs. And I remember that, uh, and I'm not sure whether this was the one immediately after Scully, but still before Steve Jobs came back. And I attended an Apple conference as a partner of theirs in Wipro. And there's a guy who, I've forgotten his name also for the matter, he came up to make a talk. And in that talk, he said something negative about the way things used to be done in Steve Jobs' ways. And now we are setting it right. You know, you could sense the perceptible hush because in America, everything is cheerleading. CEO will say something, rah, 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 cheer, 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 cheer. That's... <laughs> Such a perceptible hush fell on the audience. They just wouldn't. Uh, and you could sense the disapproval. That guy never got a single clap. And that fellow himself never lasted more than a year after that. And that is when what led to the return of Steve Jobs. So he was a difficult guy to work with, but he was a brilliant guy. Yeah. And uh, so, and the team sensed that, no? Even if the board had been stupid enough to say, okay, you should go out. Yeah. Yeah. So, which brings me also to this thing, this chapter of yours about uh, being lonely at the top. You know, that's also uh -huh. an interesting one. Uh, I think it's one of the early, early sure. chapters. It's, how yeah, it's probably the are... second or third chapter, mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah. 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 It's one of my favorite ones because, look, I've been a CEO now for since I was 34 years old. So that's more than half my life at the moment. And uh, so if there's anybody who should be feeling qualified to speak on this, certainly I am. Uh, I've never experienced a moment of loneliness. That is a funny thing. You do a good job, you carry people with you, you engage them in decision making. And what you get in turn, I must tell you, is goodwill, you get affection, you get gratitude, you get a sense of family. I have given an example where Maybe there was a period when, from a time, when I felt that the family I had was really not my real family. It was a very brief thing. It happened after 11 years of my running my tree. But that itself never changed. It didn't change my feeling of being loneliness. I may have felt uh, unhappy because of what had happened. I took my decisions. The most important thing in those things is to keep taking decisions which are positive. And then, of course, you've got a network. It's That network is, after all, your own real family also. And many other genuine friends. So I don't see a thing of being lonely. Where I think it does get sad is when people have, so I'll tell you, when people have a serious problem, but they won't go and talk to people about it. They can't go and discuss. That's when you go and find that you've got a loneliness about it. Otherwise, of course, the buck stops with the leader. 
but the leader also gets a lot of credit for things which the whole organization delivered. So yes. I think that you could strike. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And um, I mean, I could keep talking to you, but perhaps uh, I should. <laughs> so, so it is. And uh, uh, somewhere down the line, I will bring out another book, but that I won't tell you about now. And <laughs> when we get around to I'll certainly uh, seek you out. Okay, great. Okay, so for the listeners, you know, go out and get busted. Debunking management myths with logic, experience and curiosity by Ashok Suta, Peter Yeager and Sandhya Mindon. So it's really interesting. I, you know, I, I mean, I, like I said, uh, very early on in the conversation, even though it's a management book, it's a business book. I mean, uh, you know, it has a lot of wisdom in it that you don't have to be a CEO or you know, even thinking about your job uh, to be to get a lot of stuff out of this uh, uh, from this book. So thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, so. Thank you, Manjula. Wonderful speaking to you also. Take care. Okay. Bye. To stay updated on this podcast, follow us at HD Smartcast on all the major social media platforms. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to www.hdsmartcast.com.